0: Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFE Great Barrier Reef Challenge Lecture, which is a special QUT Grand Challenge Lecture involving a panel discussion and audience Q&A, facilitated by Robin Williams from ABC's The Science Show. The group of five panel members include Professor Matthew Dunn-Babin, who is Professor of Autonomous Systems at the Institute for Future Environments at QUT as well as Chief Investigator of the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision. Dr. Erin Peterson, who is a Principal Research Fellow and IntelliSensing Enabling Platform Leader at the Institute for Future Environments at QUT. Associate Professor Karen Vela, who is Senior Lecturer of Urban and Regional Planning at QUT. Professor Peter Harrison, who is Director of the Marine Ecology Research Centre. And Dr. Paul Hadisti, who is Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Institute for Marine Science. This special event was recorded on Friday the 10th of August and is entitled, Working Together to Secure the Future of Our National Icon. We hope you enjoy this Great Barrier Reef Challenge Lecture.
1: So um, this afternoon, as I said, is a very special
0: lecture. Um, We've got a number
1: of uh, very interesting and informative panellists that are going to be talking to us about the reef and the future of the reef. and it is, we're actually on the eve, as you all know, of National Science Week, and that's the annual event that celebrates uh, both science, but this year in particular is celebrating the International Year of the Reef, and also for us at QUT, they're celebrating the launch of Virtual Reef Diver, an innovative citizen science project that the IFE is very proud to be a part of. So we're fortunate today to be joined by the ABC's uh, Robin Williams. Uh, welcome, Robin who will facilitate this important conversation on, on how our brightest minds are working together to secure the future of our national icon. And of course, for many of you, Robin uh, needs no introduction, but uh, I'll give one anyway. So Robin's a uh, renowned science journalist and broadcaster. He's conducted countless interviews, uh, probably with some of you in the room, uh, for, science, uh, for scientists for television and radio, Written more than 10 books, served in various other capacities, including President of the Australian Museum Trust, Chairman of the Commission for the Future, and President of the Australian Science Communicators. Our transdisciplinary panel of experts hails from diverse fields, including spatial and environmental science, robotics, urban planning, and coral reproduction. So the panel includes some people who I'll introduce uh, very shortly. Well, actually, I'll introduce now. So, um, so first up, we've got um, Professor Matt Dunbabam, uh, Matt's an internationally renowned uh, roboticist. His Cotspot, the crown of thorns starfish robot, is uh, revolutionising advancements in, in reef care and, and no doubt Matt will be talking more about that. Uh, next we've got uh, Karen Vella. Uh, so Karen is an urban, regional and environmental planner with an international profile in research planning for climate adaptation, policy uh, and, science, and social sciences and also in the Great Barrier Reef area. So next uh, along our panel is uh, Dr. Paul Hardesty. Uh, Paul's the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And uh, he's been uh, at the Institute since, uh, for, uh, for just over a year now. So welcome, Paul. Uh, next on the panel, we've got uh, Dr. Erin Aaron Peterson. Erin's a Spatial Scientist who works at the Interface of Landscape and Aquatic Ecology, Geographic, geographic Information Science and Environmental Statistics, and she's uh, helping to lead the uh, the Virtual Reef Diver project and she'll also be talking more about that. And finally, but by no means least, we've got Professor Peter Harrison, uh, who's the Director of Marine Ecology Research Centre at Southern Cross University and an absolute recognised leader in coral reproduction ecology. And so uh, with that, I would like uh, for you to please join me in welcoming Robin and the panel to present the lecture this afternoon. So if you walk around Vienna wondering what you're going to do
2: with the whole day, it was difficult. So occasionally I went to the cinema. And the first time I went is something like 1953, and there was the Queen and Prince Philip exploring Australia. I sat through that film. (laughs) It's not the reason I came to Australia, but the second film I saw, I didn't know what it was, Hans and Lottie Hass. H-A-A-S. One or two nods there. They were the pioneers of underwater exploration and filmmaking. And so there, way back, just over 60 years ago, was the first site we had as members of the public and indeed some scientists, of what was there under the waves. So in such a short time, just about 60 years, is how long we've known about marine science on a scale such as knowing the reef. So recently. And that's why coming to terms with it is now so urgent. We know quite a lot, but not enough, and we've got to make decisions how are we going to do that. Of course, Matt, the first thing we want to do is um, say, well, technology, solve it. How are you doing so far? So, hello. Yep,
3: John. Um, Well, technology will definitely play a big role in the protection and restoration of the Great Barrier Reef and other reefs around the world. So here at QUT, we've obviously been focusing on robotics. Um, We've been developing robotic systems to uh, detect and control crown-of-thorn starfish numbers. But this isn't a – technology As in terms of robotics and computer science isn't the, the 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 silver bullet, I think it's going to be a transdisciplinary action where we're combining technologies from different domains and I'll give the example of the crown of thorn starfish. That was not possible until James Cook University developed bile salts. This is an agent that allowed one shot injection of crown of thorn starfish. That helped the control program scale um, significantly and that's just one area where we thought okay, we can now contribute our background on uh, robotic technology to um, upscale the program that's already existing and I think there's going to be a lot of technologies come out from the colleagues here on the panel um, and we can incorporate those into robotic systems as well to to help scale at what we need, you know, we've got a, a reef the size of a European country. Italy. Italy, yep. Um, you know, we we need extra hands or extra bots or extra... How many bots would you need to knock off all the starfish? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, well, initially, we were actually looking about 50 just to start even just looking for where they are, the, the, um, uh, you know, where the hot spots are and help control and manage those numbers. But we could need hundreds um, yeah, in, in the future. I think the story
2: I keep hearing is that the reef, like any natural system, reacts to too many hits If you've got starfish, if you've got temperature, if you've got overfishing, if you've got runoff, that is too much for one reef to survive. So any contribution you can make is additive and that's where you come in. Absolutely. I think we're developing tools to help
3: with those cumulative effects. Um, If we understand the cumulative effects, we can try and create mitigations against them.
2: Karen, if uh, knowledge of marine science is relatively young, what about the knowledge of how people behave, how they get together, how they unite to form an opposition to destruction to save the reef. How how much do we know about that?
4: If only we had 60 years worth of knowledge and research to help us in that space, we'd be so much further down the track. And the reality is that we've had about a, a third of that, if we're lucky. So about 20 years where we started thinking about the social dimensions of um, understanding our complex Great Barrier Reef and, and the social side of the Great Barrier Reef is just as complex as that beautiful reef structure itself. And as we start to explore what that, um, what that involves, the range of communities, the diversity of values, the diversity of interests and concerns, you know, we're really realising the, the magnitude of, of engaging people in being part of the solution.
2: And what do you say to people who want to know what the answer will be next year?
4: Hang what, about for five, an- ten years? The answer to what? I think what we what we need to do is find out ways that we, we don't have enough time to wait to, to apply traditional science methods, really, to understand who all the people are, where they go, what they do. We need to continue with that, but we kind of need to employ our other sorts of technologies to be able to generate that knowledge in a much more rapid way. And that means bringing people into the process so we can understand that knowledge and make them part of the defining what solutions might and be. And bringing
2: them into the process means being in contact with the scientists somehow and understanding what's going on and uh, not necessarily using the same old ideas that they used to, like more jobs is good, those jobs that we've always had, 19th century jobs, and various things like that.
4: Correct. Uh, people and science, but also decision makers and, and those folks within government. It's actually those three different types of knowledges that need to be brought together and we don't even know what the solutions are going to be until, we've got, you know, until we do that.
2: Paul, life is uncertain, isn't it, in all respects? How do you deal with those sort of uncertainties when you're dealing with aims and you're dealing with plans, putting the science and the people together?
5: I think uh, uncertainty is at the core of of everything that we do. It's a fundamental part of science. It always has been. So I think for most people who work in science and engineering, dealing with uncertainty is part of our stock and trade. So I don't really think that this is a whole lot different. I think I think some of the uncertainties are perhaps larger when we're talking about the reef and the future of the reef and what we can do um, collectively and individually to help to help the reef. But um, fundamentally, dealing in an uncertain world is what we have to do every day. And, and really, it's about how you do that. You have to actually embrace uncertainty and use it to your advantage, and there are ways of doing that. And so um, we're actually engaged in a number of projects that
2: do exactly that. I'll ask you what they are in a minute, but um, one of the problems is that you, as a reasonable scientist, are dealing with not 100%ers. Now, when I was reading, Yesterday, Andrew Bolt, when I was reading the Australian newspaper the day before, they had, I think, five articles all saying the same thing, one of them by Ian Plymer, saying 100% no problem. Now, scientists don't deal in 100 percenters unless it's life or death. You know, how do you deal with a public debate where people go around saying something is 100% not happening?
5: Yeah, that's a that's a difficult question. Look, um, as the CEO of the Australian Institute of Marine Science, we are the nation's national marine science agency. And our job is to provide the best available scientific advice to government, to industry, to anybody who needs it. And that's what we've been dedicated to doing for 45 years. We've specialized and worked on the reef for 45 years. And we've never really varied from the fact that we have to provide the very best available information. And to do that with an object the size of Italy that's so complex and so varied and such a, such a complex social um, construct that sits around it, there is always uncertainty. So to deny it
2: is, well, scientifically ridiculous. You're going to suggest a couple of measures that you are taking now. One of the things that we're doing at the moment with
5: partners, many of which are represented in this room and on this panel, is that we have been asked by the federal government to do a major feasibility study into whether or not interventions, active interventions on the reef to help protect it in the future are feasible, whether they're scientifically Um, possible, whether they're valid, what the costs might be around these things, what the benefits would be, whether they're socially acceptable or not, and what kind of governance structures would have to be put in place to make those work. So we're right at the beginning. We're saying, we're looking at all of the possible things we could do and trying to determine whether or not they are feasible and desirable for society. I mean, we're literally at that stage, right at the beginning. because. Intervening in such a beautiful and well-known natural system is in itself fraught with potential controversy.
2: What I tend to do is uh, recommend certain journals uh, where people can get reliable information. And it just so happens that the editorial in The New Scientist this week sums it up in terms of uh, the problems we have with climate change and effects on the reef. It's a very brief editorial, but God, it's got a punch. Similarly, the cover story in this week's Economist, which has got, I think, probably the best coverage of science of any general magazine. I happen to know the people who write the stuff and they're amazingly smart. And the cover story is, are we losing the battle against climate change? And the, both the editorial and the pages inside are devastating in their directness. So. When you see all the propaganda elsewhere, I would say please read these other things and uh, tell me what you think. I mentioned citizen science. We heard about citizen science in the intro. Now, it just so happens, if I may ask you about citizen science before what's going on this week. um, The chap who helped invent citizen science was the same fellow in Cambridge who invented the term scientist, Dr. William Hewell, who worked with citizen scientists in 1833, roughly, on tides and got them together and it was quite wonderful. It just so happens when he was, and I think this is worth bearing in mind, that when he was inventing the term scientist to answer a question from Coleridge, the poet, who was uh, rather concerned about the fact that now scientists got their hands dirty, didn't just sit on dunes in togas having pure thoughts, So what do you call these people? And so Huell said, oh, I I think we should call them a scientist. Somebody objected, it sounded too much like atheist, but it went through nonetheless. And then he said, he first used it because he wanted to call call a certain person a man of science, but she was a woman. So he decided to say scientist. So the first person in the English speaking world to be called in history was Mary Somerville. The first scientist to be called such was a woman, hence my asking you. (laughs) What's happening with citizen science at the moment regarding the reef?
6: Well, I I mean, I'm not an expert on citizen science, but I do lead the Virtual Reef Diver Project. Um, And so uh, this is a project that we uh, released just earlier this week for National Science Week. And it essentially, allows us to tap into the power of citizens on the ground and online to help us classify uh, underwater images. And that's really powerful. So today, when I came into this um, panel, we had 64,000 images that had been classified since Monday. Um, And this project will go for a year. So that just gives you an idea of what what power citizens have to contribute. If we can find a way to have them contribute in a scientifically vigorous way, that we can use that information to make better management decisions.
2: And I'm hoping, Karen, that you take some consolation in this, because if you've got those many people working with scientists on real research, being involved like that, one's despairing about democracy and all that sort of blockage, well, looks rather different, don't you think?
4: I think people are looking for a way to be involved. And this is a great example of an opportunity to actually get involved and, and be part of the solution by generating data that can be used. So, yes, I think it's very optimistic.
2: Erin, I know you're not an expert necessarily on this, but uh, can you rely on the kind of observations that citizens make?
6: Well, I'm, the answer to that is yes and no, because every person's different. So some people will give us really highly accurate data and others weren't. But I think the more important question is, um, we need to ask is why are we trying to train citizens to give us perfect data? Instead, I think what we need to do is change the paradigm so that as when we're doing monitoring, we don't need perfect data. And so we don't need data that's been uh, collected fit for purpose or data that's standardized in some way. And that is in no way saying that we don't need these uh, very high-quality, long-term data sets that Ames collects. I'm just saying that we need to find a way to design a program so that we can tap into the efforts of you know private industry uh, reef operators, community, and citizen science groups and bring that data together. And also account for the uncertainty in that data. And we can do that with math and statistics, and that can extend to new technologies. So with the RangerBot and COTSpot, they're taking underwater images and videos as they move through the environment, and we can use those. And the exciting thing about this to me is that by doing this, we open up all kinds of opportunities to do new partnerships with government agencies and research institutions, private industries and community. So everybody out there has a way to contribute in a positive and scientifically rigorous way to monitoring and management.
2: It's like building a movement.
6: (laughs) Yeah, it feels like that sometimes.
2: Peter, was it the same uh, in the Philippines when you were there looking at this sort of thing?
7: In terms of citizens and science yes so we've um, in the Philippines I've been working in the Philippines um, funded by the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research looking at using millions of coral larvae to increase the rates of coral recruitment back onto highly degraded reef systems that have been smashed for uh, decades now by blast fishing Um, they also had crown of thorns outbreaks when they had enough coral to eat and they no longer do And so uh, what we're doing deliberately in that process is engaging as many of the local communities in the process of restoration as possible. And our approach is is different to most coral restoration projects around the world, which tend to rely on fragmentation and cloning processes. We're actually using um, sexual reproduction and the higher genetic diversity and therefore the higher probability that the product of those processes is going to be better adapted to the changing climate on the reef system. And how's it going? It's going extremely well. Um, We've had eight of eight successful larval restoration projects, five in the Philippines, in the northern part of Luzon, and three on the southern Great Barrier Reef as pilot studies there. And uh, we've found some really interesting things. So in the first pilot study done at small scale, we were able to get the surviving corals to be reproductive size within three years, which is surprising given just how bad the water quality on that reef is. And um, then even more surprisingly, when we bred from those three-year-old corals that spawned for the first time, we put some of those larvae back onto adjacent reef patches, and uh, we've actually got them to reproductive size within two years. And that's the first time anywhere in the world that we're, you know, any of the teams have been able to do that. And so we've closed the life cycle on a highly degraded reef within just two years. So it gives us some hope that we may be able to scale this up to larger scales.
2: One of the problems with the corals is that as they heat up, they tell the algae, which are living there, which giving them uh, carbohydrates, to get out. I think there may be some sort of e-reaction where you get uh, poisonous secretion from the algae. But is there a way of persuading these little corals not to be so bloody minded and to stop kicking them out? Can, can't you make a GM coral reef?
7: Theoretically, Next it week? may be possible. We Next don't know. Uh, yeah, we, in a week, no. <laughs> um, Theoretically, it may be possible to use some of the, the latest gene technologies to do those sorts of things, but I think that's a long way down the track. I think there'll, there's some interesting experiments you could do in the laboratory around that, and colleagues at the Australian Institute of Marine Science are doing some fascinating work looking at um, thermally stressing ranges of these algae, looking at the survivors of those thermal stress experiments, and seeing that the survivors actually have higher thermal tolerance. Mm -hmm. We know that um, these symbiodinium algae, these microscopic algae, they're one one hundredth of a millimeter in diameter and there are literally millions of them in coral tissue. We know they're super important. We also know they're highly diverse. It's not just one group in there. There's a whole range of what we call different clades. And we know that they have different thermal tolerances. So using the natural diversity that's inherent within those groups and then looking at the ways in which we might try and match some of those with thermally tolerant larvae in the future gives us at least some scope for looking at increasing thermal tolerance at least over the next decade or so. And what do you think about the work Ruth is doing in Hawaii? Yes, Ruth again is doing some fantastic work uh, in combination with Madeline Van Oppen from Ames and the University of Melbourne. And so they're looking at, again, the same sorts of principles looking at the coral tissues and the symbiodinium and trying to work out how these processes of slow evolution in this partnership can be enhanced and doing some things, some really interesting work with hybridization. Hybrids occur naturally on the reef system, but in some cases there's the potential for hybrid vigor. So again, looking at some natural processes that may be enhanced through some clever thinking is is a really good way of starting that process.
2: Okay, now let's address any of you the problem of scaling up, because here you've got something the size of Italy, you've got uh, a very short time, it has to happen in the next two, three, four, five years, and uh, it's gonna cost a fortune, 440 million you've heard about uh, the scandal, or whatever it happens to be, but avoiding the politics. Please, Paul, how how do we deal with that?
5: Yeah, so um, I'm actually an applied scientist, otherwise known as an engineer, so this is definitely in my area, so thanks for letting me lead off on this. This project that I mentioned, the Reef Restoration and Adaptation Program, RRAP, that the current feasibility study is uh, intended, uh, is going on right now. We are looking at exactly that. What would be required at scale? What kind of money are we talking about? What kind of combinations of measures would work together best to achieve it? And I want the, f- the first thing I can tell you is that the 400 million that you've everyone's heard of, the 443 million that you've heard of, is not enough. Well, th- of that, 100 million is earmarked to continue this RAP study over the next five years, and that's to do research and development into these techniques to find out if we could deploy them. We are already modeling what it would take to actually theoretically deploy a number of tools and techniques. Now. We're talking about billions of dollars. If we have to intervene as, as human beings in a natural system to save it under the worst climate tra- uh, change trajectories, and there's a gentleman in the audience here who can tell you a lot more about it, Ken Anthony, who's sitting here, works with us um, you're, you're literally talking about spending, yeah, tens of, probably tens of billions of dollars over the next, uh, 10, 20 years to safeguard the reef. Now, is it possible? We're still working that out, but those are the kinds of broad numbers you're talking about. Now, can Australia afford that? Hell yeah, we're a rich country. Yeah. I'm a new immigrant.
2: Remind, from remind Canada, yourself
5: but of we're that. a rich country and and we can if we decide that it's a priority and then we don't fund some other things. Then you can, you know, everybody can make their own choices about what we might cut. Is it possible? The the question is this though. What's happening on the Great Barrier Reef? is not an isolated thing, as you mentioned. It's happening around the world, and so this is a global problem in which Australia is at a point where we can take international global leadership because we're already starting to forge ahead with things that Mark are doing and everybody else on this panel. We're starting to forge ahead globally, and uh, and, um, there's a real opportunity that we're gonna be able to help others. Scale is huge. Time, is almost more important. What we're already finding is is that every year that goes by, the window of opportunities for different methods close. So a lot of the methods will only work under certain temperature conditions. So the longer we continue to raise global temperatures, the smaller those windows become. So it's not only a physical scale issue; it is an issue of compressing time. There's a tem- temporal dimension to this, which is accelerating in the wrong direction, that makes this a very, very difficult challenge. I, I, I can't underestimate—you can't underestimate it. This is a very, very difficult challenge. It's like back in the '60s, putting putting a person on the moon. It, it, it's it's the same. It's, it's a huge that. challenge, and we did And we did it, 60, and we can do
2: it. Fifty years ago. Yeah, yeah next 50 year, years fifty ago. years ago next yeah. year we did it now Karen uh, when it comes to uh, small achievements, obviously you can't solve the whole problem at once. How important is it to solve part of the problem and have something you know real examples you can look at somewhere, however small?
4: I think it's really important absolutely um People, I said before, people want to feel optimistic. They want to be doing something. And solving small problems helps you take a step in that longer direction. It can feel overwhelming when we hear about where we're heading and the trajectory that we're on and what needs to to happen. It's an overwhelming sense of, of what needs to happen. But by scaling it down, really understanding what local technologies might work, understanding what the risks or benefits might be of, of employing different technologies and, and trialling those and, and learning from that and then using that knowledge to upscale, I think is actually part of the solution and what we need to do.
2: And to make it a political example, look what you can do, let's do it more. Now, I want to ask you an outrageous question, uh, but you're, you're an engineer, you won't mind, but uh, It's not about robotics, it's about the fact that, uh, for example, you had um, the reef was saved in half because the cyclone caused rain in the south and the rain kept it cool so you didn't get bleaching right the way through. What if you used geoengineering and did something that helped, not cyclones, but rain somehow cooling from the sky? Is anyone talking about that much?
3: Yeah, so I think that's some of the options that have been
2: considered in the, um,
3: the reef restoration project. And Paul might be a better one to actually answer on that because, um, yeah, terraforming or even uh, so atmospheric uh, cloud seeding, those, those are all options. Yeah, yeah so,
5: so cloud brightening, um, putting very thin layers of shading uh, materials on top of the water during those key few weeks when the, when the bleaching potential is highest, there's a whole range of possible interventions that are in that geoengineering physical
2: cooling category that we're looking at. And there's also something called a Gaia effect. I'm not being mystical, but uh, both forests and the sea, through what comes up from the surface, affects the local climate in various ways. So there's lots to study in the the subtleties thereof, but what about other ideas that may make a difference? What sort of things are going on that we haven't heard about so far? Much. Paul, you keep going. I,
5: mean, <laughs> I don't, don't want to.
2: And then. Pe- I don't wanna, re- I yeah, it, it, there's there's a
5: there's a huge range of things. So we've mentioned the, the physical interventions. There's also the restoration piece. So when reefs are damaged, and it's the kind of the work that you were describing before, but when they're damaged, what happens is you end up with piles of rubble. The coral dies and it just collapses and turns into rubble, and it's not stable. And it's really hard. You're the expert on this. I'm just a lowly engineer. Yeah. Okay. But but they, it's hard for them to. To, to land and settle and grow on that. So there's a whole range of, of, of interventions that are not particularly sexy, if you want to use that word, but they're about creating surfaces that are stable where those larvae can land and, and regenerate. And so that's a very much an engineering problem. Mm. And again, if you think about it, doing it at scale, it, it, it's 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 really a, an interesting problem. So there's all that restoration piece, but then there's the stuff that that I think you know maybe you you should talk about, and that's the 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 making corals better able to adapt to future conditions.
7: So there are a range of different restoration techniques that have been trialled around the world and the most common one, as I mentioned before, is fragmentation and unfortunately, even uh, when groups and community groups have been involved in restoration projects, for example, in Fiji, uh, there was, um, you know, tens of thousands of outplants created and they got wiped out by a bleaching event uh, because of low genetic diversity. Similarly, uh, a colleague of mine, um, Professor Amori in Japan, has worked with a local community in the southern part of Okinawa for more than five years, and they outplanted uh, 150,000 um, fragments of 72 species, and unfortunately there was mass die-off of that during the most recent marine heat wave. So again, that just reinforces this process that if you rely just on relatively few genotypes in the process, you 're increasing the risk that many more of those corals will die in future, so the other approach is to take it to look at sexual genetic diversity and using, using sexual processes so in addition to that, there so there 's another really in, interesting innovative technique that 's been developed out of Mo marine Laboratory, Dave Vaughan and, and colleagues there in the u s and One of the difficulties with uh, restoration is most people rely on fast-growing branching corals which grow pretty quickly. They're really important habitats for tens of thousands of species. They increase biodiversity on these reef systems, but um, the slow-growing corals are also really important. The problem is they grow so slowly that they don't achieve um, sexual reproductive size for many, many years, and some of the slower-growing species it may be more than 10 years. So, when you start getting mass die off of very large, old, slow growing corals, it creates a real problem. There's a real gap in terms of what really is happening in terms of restoration on a reef system. So, Dave Vaughan's group have been doing some innovative stuff where they're what uh, is colloquially termed reskinning. And what they're doing is taking fragments, but instead of just planting the fragments out on the reef and, and hoping they will grow, they're replanting the fragments onto dead corals or onto dead surfaces and getting sideways lateral growth. And because they're from the same genotypes, they're fusing together and they're reskinning these dead corals. We don't know yet how successful that will be in terms of highly productive um, sexual units in future, but there's a promise there. So, again, some of the lateral thinking around some of these processes is really quite interesting.
2: you wanted to add to that? Um, for Karen first and then... All right, Paul, you go first, then Karen will go off in a oh, different no, direction. I just, add,
5: I just wanted to add that um, in, in the National Sea Simulator, which is at a, a Australian Institute of Marine Science, we have the world's most sophisticated research aquarium complex. We're actually doing a lot of this work around hybridized corals, around um, looking at the possibility of um, synthetic biology. So actually using CRISPR-Cas9 technology to insert more heat tolerant genes and those kinds of things. Um, it's it's open to the public. If you ever want to come up to Townsville, anyone's welcome. <laughs> it's only thirteen hundred kilometers north of here. Uh, yeah, so there's some pretty amazing stuff going on in terms of what's possible. The scale: hundreds of millions of corals would have to be deployed every year for the next several decades if we needed if we wanted to recover. Um, you know, a big chunk of the reef, we're talking about hundreds of millions, so this can't be divers going down and gluing stuff on, you know, one by one, that coral gardening they call it, it can't be that, it has to be large-scale industrialized process, otherwise all you're going to do is maybe keep a few high-value reefs. Karen.
4: Of course, the other thing that we're trying to do is understand how we can take pressures off the reef, um, particularly pressures from catchments, but also how we can adapt to mitigate the effects of climate change. And one of the things I'm really excited about to have been involved in is work with um, JCU and CSIRO, which is trying to understand the capacities of communities in the Great Barrier Reef to be able to um, implement new management practices or adapt their communities and industries in the face of, you know, where climate change is taking those industries and communities. I mean, the people that live in the GBR rely heavily dependent on a resource which is, you know, at risk and change has to be part of the future. So, what we're trying to understand is to what extent are people equipped with, have the resources, have the technologies, or need the support to be able to make necessary changes?
2: Well, may I hit you with uh, something that came from... Uh, I think you know the name, <laughs> Peter. Jane Lubchenko, who is the head of NOAA, the Oceanographic and Atmospheric Organisation in the state. She worked for Obama for nearly eight years. And uh, I asked her the question about if you've got a big coastline, and she knows Australia extremely well, and you were to exploit the natural systems rather than change them out of sight by putting concrete all, all up and down the coast. Should we say ports? Should we say lots of things like that? What would be the difference? Would you lose an awful lot of jobs? Would you lose an awful lot of wealth? And she said they had studied that, looking at a whole range of activities, and natural systems and found that you would increase the wealth of the area by 30% if you bounced off the natural systems without changing them or wrecking them. And if you put together all sorts of things, not just the mangroves, which we know about being vastly important for fisheries. But for instance, the seagrasses, which no one particularly thinks about much unless they're scientists, which absorb 100 times more CO2 than tropical rainforests. I mean, they're unbelievably important, those seagrasses. They also wipe out plagues of germs. They clean up the waterways. Those sorts of things, once they become better known, don't you think, Peter, would uh, turn it out? out of sight if people knew that sort of information. And Jane Lipchenko, I think, should be invited over here and talk about it, don't you? Oh,
7: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So seagrass, as we know, are are super important. Uh, They're primary habitats, primary feeding habitats, turtles, dugong, all sorts of other organisms use them. But the other thing that that this raises is that the reef system is interconnected. So we talk about the reef as though it's some isolated thing that you can draw a line around, but in nature it doesn't work like that. Energy flow, fish movement, nutrient cycling, all sorts of things like that occur. And you quite often find sea grasses in areas of some parts of the reef. So the whole system is interconnected and recognising what each parts, each element of the bigger reef structure are really doing in terms of carbon capture, their values, their values for fisheries, their values for people, and the way in which people value these
2: things differently are really important. Hmm. Aaron, you comment on that, and then I'll ask Matt to do it, and then I'll ask questions. From the audience.
6: Well, I completely agree that the Great Barrier Reef isn't just one system. It's very complex, and there's a lot of heterogeneity there. And I think people at home might be surprised to find out that we don't have good maps of the Great Barrier Reef. We don't know. We have. I've seen the data. We don't know what's in many of those areas. And so if we want to um, get better information to understand where we can do interventions, then I think we have to start working together a lot better. So I read something the other day that there's over 90 organizations currently monitoring the reef or monitoring the catchments in the reef. And so we just can't afford not to take all of that data, bring it together so that we have the most up-to-date maps of coral on the reef as possible.
2: Bounce off your citizen science.
6: Well, it's my passion, it's monitoring, and every place around the world is struggling with these same situations where we have lots and lots of organizations, people are super passionate, they want to contribute, but it's quite fragmented. And so we have to come together and find ways to make use of all of that data, and we can do it with math and statistics, because, um, you know, that's the only cost-effective way that we can find out what's going on on the reef.
2: Makes sense
3: to you? Absolutely, Um, and I think that's a good segue into why we actually do what we're doing in terms of creating technologies to help monitor and understand at scale. Um, We don't know a lot about what's... you know, We haven't 100% covered the reef in terms of visual imagery, but imagine if we can give tools to the citizens, like the fisherman that goes out to a reef that we might not visit for two years on a normal survey. If we gave them the tool just to drop in, it will collect imagery come back while they're fishing. Um, that information will be vital for some of these statistical models and just understanding what what's there, sorry. Um, but also, from a management perspective, if we start to find that there's some early threats, for example, thorns starfish, um, we can intervene uh, at an earlier stage and wait for the outbreak to be you know, devastating that part of the reef. So I think providing tools that we can upscale and potentially industrialise reef restoration is, is, you know,
2: going to be a very important thing. I never under, underestimate the enthusiasm. I don't know if you've been watching War on Waste on television, Craig Rucastle. I talked to him two days ago, and uh, I said that the thing that really moved me most of all was when you went to the schools. And, OK, you, it, it's quite easy to get the, all the kids to go, yeah, yeah, ray, ray, ray. But nonetheless, what they got was a real response. The kids are dying to get on with it because they hear so much bad news about how things can't be done get them going, and it makes a huge difference. And uh, on that note, put your hands up. Any questions? There are microphones uh, around somewhere. (laughs) Yes, please.
0: Um, Interesting discussion as we look into the deep waters, the reef and its fascination, but I I just want to happen when we look west, look up into the catchments. Um, We're hearing lots about um, the impacts and the need to to solve, but um, it'd be great to look at some of the source issues, like um, we talk about interventions, you definitely need the interventions and it's called catchment management. It's sort of missing from the debate today, but I know Karen's been busy working in that space, understanding the governance, but it'd be great to have the high-tech happening up in the the paddocks and all those riparian zones. Um, Great opportunity. Uh,
3: Absolutely, and I, so we work there's researchers here and uh, all around the, the country for example um, uh, Peter Grace here is working on technologies to improve uh, water quality so if fertiliser and nutrient runoff is an issue we try and stop it at the source how can we apply innovative yet simple technologies that are affordable that the landholders would be uh, um, sort of willing to try and adopt and I think and we're actually finding that the community is really adopting technology. If they want to know um, you can get drones now and they can map their paddock, they can do... Uh, if we can create more tools that tell them, OK, this is a potential erosion site or um, early warning that you actually over-fertilising or under-fertilising certain areas, that's important information that they can get in real time. And um, I think we're going to be moving there. And I, I don't
6: know... Well, I could just add to that. So... I think one of the challenges in the catchments is that, um, you know, we have in situ sensors for things like air quality, but they're not as well developed for streams. So um, temperature sensors are inexpensive, they cost about $100, but we don't care about temperature, we care about uh, turbidity, nutrients, and pesticides, and though the cost of those sensors has not come down enough so that we can distribute them through the catchment and find out where the sources are. I mean, we have early adopters who want to do the right things, but there's a lot of people people there that aren't doing the right thing. So I've been doing some work with Department of Environment and Science and looking at how we can, they've been working on low-cost nitrate sensors and how we can deploy them up the catchment and predict where these sources are coming from. So I think people are working on it um, and I think people are working on the technologies and hopefully we'll see something like that in the next five to ten years
5: just just of the 443 million announced 200 million of it's just for water quality and it's all about exactly that so it's a big thing
7: Robin, you made the comment that all the school were really keen to do something about waste. I would argue that every single person in the room here has turned up because they're really concerned to do something about the reef. I would like to ask each of the people on the panel to come up with one really practical suggestion that every single person here can go home and do, which gives us all five things to do, whether that's writing to Malcolm every other week, whether it's writing to Bill on the alternate week, whether it's volunteering. How can we practically, as the non-marine scientists, express our support and practice practical input into this
2: discussion. Erin, go.
6: So you can go right now to our website www.virtualreefdire.org and help us classify underwater images. And it actually, you know, we're trying to understand how citizens can, and people at home can contribute. We're testing how accurate people are across different compositions within the images. And we're actually comparing it to how automated image classification algorithms work. So it's really an experiment for us as a sort of scientific community to find the right place where we can depend on citizen science data. So classify some images.
2: Who's next, Matt, one thing.
3: Um, I'd say walk home, let's stop climate change. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I have to have a think still, sorry.
5: (laughs) Yeah, Matt, uh, look, if we stay on the current global emissions trajectory, business as usual, and by the way, we're accelerating, our emissions globally are accelerating now, they haven't plateaued, they're actually increasing. There won't be a reef as we know it, in the next couple of days, two, three decades, won't be there. So one thing, yeah, write to your representatives, write to your government, buy 100% renewable energy, cut your emissions, and and push everyone else to do it. Otherwise, every, nothing else really matters. Cameron.
4: So, I'd say most people in this room are, are probably involved in some sort of local action group or citizen science group or local environmental group. I would encourage everybody in the room to have a conversation with somebody who's not in the room about this, uh, about, about this challenge and about the role that we can all play.
2: Peter, have you said something yet? No, I <laughs> no, no, haven't. good ideas so gone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, look,
7: obviously all of those are uh, really important. I guess one of the other things, if we take a different perspective, there are some areas of the reef that are still gorgeous and they are world heritage and they are really important. So go and see the reef while you still can and tell everybody about it, share all of those beautiful images, your experience, network as hard as you can... As well as doing the writing, as well as doing the reduced carbon footprint, going off grid, getting solar, all those things are really important. It's not one thing that needs to happen. But the connection to the reef, it changes your life when you see it. Explain that to people
2: in conversation, in your social media, and in the way you vote. Changed my life in 1954, seeing those, you know, having bunked off school, seeing that movie. Hans and Lottie Haas, in the Red Sea, underwater, not that deep, but I've never forgotten. Microphone, just one here and one over there. There you are. Well, this is a terribly simple, non-scientific question, really, but how do you start to see the reef? I I mean... At some level, the obvious answer would be to go to Townsville and Cairns and book on some tourist boat or something, I imagine, but um,
4: that's not how we engage with most of the things we get up close and personal with. How can just ordinary people start to engage more with the reef without it being a one-off major tourist trip?
6: Well, this isn't a really deep answer, but about how people connect to the reef, but on our website, um, the, the uh, visualization and e-research lab here at QUT has developed an app that allow it, which you can download from Google Play store and used with Google Cardboards, and it serves up 360 degree images of real reefs. So people can actually see what they look like and experience what it feels like to be immersed. I mean, it's artificial. It's not, you should still go out with your local dive operator and experience the reef. But I think it's really important because uh, people have never seen a reef. Have an idea of a movie star, the movie star reef, you know, on David Attenborough's shows, where they have perfect lighting and it's very shallow and these very vivid colors. And in reality, reefs, very healthy reefs, are you know maybe have muted colors and they look quite a bit different. So people can actually immerse themselves and see what a real healthy reef looks like.
4: Also, doesn't have to be the Great Barrier Reef. We have great reefs off the coast of uh, southeast Queensland. So that would be a great way to get out and experience the reef. Uh, Flinders Reef, just north of Brisbane, would be a great place to go and experience a reef.
5: And WA, some of the best reefs in the world are off the coast of Western Australia and up in the
2: top end. Gigantic reefs, yes. There was one over there, yes, please. Um, uh, hi. Sorry. Who's going In uh, every proposal I've been asked to review and every report about the Great Barrier Reef, I've read the first two paragraphs always quote, um, it's worth 6.4 billion, it's got 64,000 jobs. Um, Interesting, I haven't heard anybody really talking about the role of industry in going forward. Um, I would have thought, given that they're viewed in many ways as a potential problem, also a potential solution, but I'm interested to hear from the panel um, I'm not convinced we need a hell of a lot more science. I think we do know, we need a lot of solution science. I think we do know where the problems are. So I don't, for example, in the water quality, I don't think we really do need, I think we do know where the issues are. It's how you engender the trade-offs to get the solutions. May I bring in Matt here because he represents some engineering, which is not simply a robot, it goes underwater, but a whole knowledge of how robots work that is a future industry over and beyond, I would have thought, some of the 19th century industries that we keep on trying to keep. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And there's going to be the only way we can actually go at scale at some of these techniques that we're looking about is industrialization of coral breeding technologies and other restoration techniques. Um, and you know. I know that the, the the group is looking at um, engaging industry and getting uh, yeah uh, you know getting consultants to actually come up with concept ideas about how you actually scale this. And I think there is going to be new industries come out. There's going to be you know. Uh, technology companies, it's going to be reef restorations companies, um, empowering the tourism industry to take an active role. It could become an eco-tourism opportunity to actually help restore reefs. So there's going to be a lot of technologies and a lot of opportunities to actually create business models um, to, to help potentially offset the cost, but actually implement at scale.
2: Aaron?
6: So there's obviously the industries um, that Matt's talking about, but I think there are other ways to engage with industry, and I think the model that the Great Barrier Reef Foundation uses is excellent. So those might be industries who don't uh, develop technology for reefs. It could be an insurance company, but they want to partner with researchers to create solutions. So, you know, uh, we're talking about billions of dollars, but there are companies that are willing to partner with us and share some of that cost, and I think we should take advantage of it.
2: Yes, over there, you have a mic. Yes, I have seen in the Botanic Gardens, um, remnants of, of coral that was dragged up there, I think when they um, made the river deeper. Um, so we've had coral reefs, obviously off Brisbane, and presumably that was in warmer times, and presumably it's died off. Um, Will, if, if climate change is here to stay, and it gradually gets warmer, further south, does that mean that we're going to have nice reefs off Brisbane, or is the underwater topography not suited?
7: Um, the Great Barrier Reef won't migrate south. We just don't have the same um, shelf space and water depth and clarity and those sorts of things. So it is a, an idea that gets out there occasionally. But I think your question is really interesting, because locally, um, I think it's about um, 6,000 years ago. Uh, sea level was slightly higher in Moreton Bay. It was a more marine system. And these rather sensitive, fast-growing Acropora corals were the things that dominated the reef. I've actually dived lots of places in Moreton Bay. And, um, yes, given the numbers of sharks and the horrid water, it's some of the worst diving I've done, apart from diving on now dead reefs everywhere. But um, there's there are some quite spectacular um, coral formations in Moreton Bay. So... Uh, around Peel Island, for example, there's uh, brain coral communities that I've never seen the like of anywhere else. Um, Myora Reef has one particular species of Acropora branching coral um, in great abundance. And so we know from the sub-fossil record that these these reefs were much more interesting, if you like, uh, thriving to a much higher degree when Moreton Bay was more marine as more and more um, freshwater influence came in and more estuarine conditions, higher rates of uh, mud and now since human settlements and industrialization, we've got much more sediment, much more nutrient and all sorts of problems in Moreton Bay. Um, We know that those systems have changed. So again, I guess that gives you, again, a very important clue that corals are actually really important sensors in our marine system and when corals start to turn up their tentacles and die, We know something serious is happening.
2: And, of course, there are so many thousands of different species. You know, the the, the ones you see, obviously, are are just, just, just the surface, but thousands of them altogether. Biodiversity is almost as big a problem as climate change in this world.
7: Absolutely, and it's the loss of biodiversity before we can even discover it. So we don't know how many species are on reef systems around the world. There are various estimates... Um, and they sort of average at around 1 million species on global reef systems. But the point is, we know that globally 60% of reefs around the world have either already started disappearing or are so badly threatened they won't exist in a couple of decades. In Southeast Asia, the centre of marine and phyletic diversity on our planet, 95% of the reef systems there are either already trashed or under such immense human pressure that they won't exist as functioning reef systems within one to two decades. And that's where the centre of the world's marine biodiversity is. So with the loss of that, it's not only the loss of corals, remember, it's the loss of the function and the biodiversity associated with those corals, which is crucial.
2: A couple more questions, then we must stop. Yes, please. One over there. Hi. Hi. Um, you've mentioned the international significance of the reef, but it's Australia's burden. Should it remain this way, or should we spend the political capital in getting other nations on board? There is, there is a, there's, a, there's
5: a there's a there's a big international effort. There's something called the Global Coral Reef Initiative, um, International Coral Reef Initiative, ICRE, uh, of which Australia is a key founding member. Uh, we're actually uh, now, we've just taken over the chairmanship joint, jointly with Monaco and Indonesia from, from France. And so there already is that. However, you've got to understand that a lot of the reefs in the world that, uh, particular ones that were just described, are in countries that are not nearly as rich as we are. And the wherewithal in those countries to do anything significant uh, is, is limited. Compared to countries like Australia, so it's not a burden. It's a treasure. It's ours Uh, I personally, you know, it's a personal question really. I believe that it is ours to look after and 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 More than that that we also I think have an obligation to help Other nations with what we learn through some of the science and the leading science and, and development and technology and understanding of social systems That we're doing in this country. We're right at the front Not only do we have to protect the Barrier Reef and the reefs in WA and across the top end, but we have to help others meet this incredible challenge. A quarter of the world's protein comes from the ocean in one way or another, and a lot of that has to go through its life cycle in a reef in one way or another. I mean, this is just, this is really important for just the, for survival. It's, it's not just that they're pretty and nice to look at, it's much, much more than that. You know, Ian mentioned the, the great economic value. The, 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 the Great Barrier Reef itself, if you wanted to put a, a total ecosystem services value on it, it's worth as much as the GDP of the whole country. I mean, it's trillions. And it's not billions, it's trillions of dollars. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something we all have to... We have to own it. If we don't
2: own it, who will? Last question.
4: Can I ask the panel uh, whether you believe the, the NEG is offering too little to be worth signing or should the states sign it as a starting point? Sorry, it's a political question.
2: Sorry? <laughs> <laughs>
7: I'm obviously not expert in um, that process but from the impartial records that I've read about it it doesn't seem to be adequate and it doesn't seem to be focused in the way we need to be in order to make real change in the way our society functions and uses its energy and generates its energy. Um, so it it would appear to me to be at least inadequate.
2: Karen, you're uh. about <laughs> Do you want to add to that? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Is it better than nothing? Uh,
4: did- People are saying, right, it's 10 years and nothing has happened. Do we not need a starting point somewhere? It's, it's obviously far from perfect, but is it better than nothing?
5: How about I'll answer that, or well, I'll attempt it obliquely. So Paris, the Paris Accord on Climate Change, same, I think it's the same thing, but writ perhaps larger. Is it perfect? No. No. Uh, is it binding? No. Are there going to be loopholes and problems? Yes. Have we had anything else that since Kyoto that's actually been there that we can at least start from? No. So it's a starting point. It, that's all it is, and it's better than better than having no starting point. Yeah. Perfection
2: so. is such an annoying thing, isn't it? aiming for perfection to start.
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting, you know, I'm not making a comment directly on ADG, but I, I think that for me uh, the, the Paris thing is, is a really interesting analogy. It's, it's like anything, I mean, the, the journey to try to intervene on the reef is a similar question. Do we do it? Well, we've taken the first step. We've started. We've got something now that forms a platform for examining it in a a logical, robust way, and and that's a start. Where we'll go, we don't know. Time will tell.
2: And also, I think people should be educated about what they're really doing. Uh, I'm sure the lights in this room are terribly valuable. Need we have all of them on? I don't know. When I got into the office at... uh, 10 past 5 this morning and made two programs before coming here. Uh, I turned off I think it was 20 computers and if you put your heads down by that little apparatus that controls them, you hear the fan going around chugging away chugging away all through the night for what purpose what's don't these young people think of anything like that and uh, the person this is between ourselves who does download this show, he leaves his computer on all week. (laughs) If I'm away, there it goes. I mean, the the, the capacity to save is gigantic. And I remember when Geraldine Doug actually confessed she had the most gigantic, again, the same word, uh, electricity bill. And so she brought, and I'm not giving a secret away in this instance, because she brought in an auditor to walk around the house. She said, I'm doing everything right. I've got panels on the roof. What's happening? Why am I paying 900 bucks a quarter? And I am was paying, uh, at the time, 125 bucks a quarter. And so the auditor said, you come into this room. Have you noticed how many lights are on? How many computers are running? Teenagers were in that room. And they're totally destructive, as you know. <laughs> and we ought to have GM teenagers to <laughs> turn it around. You could save something like 30% of your power bill tomorrow by being aware of these things. And I'm a sort of obsessive-compulsive person. I do it! <laughs> and um, I think it's about time someone else did. So thank you for the discussion. We're going to continue it upstairs, is it not? And there might be... In Sorry? In the cube. In the cube, that's right. Thank you for listening and
1: thank you, panel. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at quteduau forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at I-F-E underscore Q-U-T and also on Instagram at I-F-E dot Q-U-T. We really hope you enjoyed this I-F-E podcast.